Look at our text this morning. We're going to read from verse 30 down through verse 44. Luke 4, verse 30. This, of course, is a continuation of the story of Jesus' visit back to his hometown of Nazareth. Those verses just preceding this where the people become so enraged that they're about ready to toss him off the cliff outside their town. But Verse 30, But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any who were sick with divers, that's diverse or various diseases, brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew he was Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him. That is, they would have held him by force, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. We have been studying the beginning of Christ's public ministry from its beginning down on the banks of the Jordan River where Jesus is baptized by John and how it continues in an early Judean ministry that took place at the Feast of Passover down in Judea. But lately we have been studying the beginning of his Galilean ministry. Now, of course, Galilee was up in the northern end of Israel, Judea down in the southern end. And we find that though he is rejected in his own town, his hometown of Nazareth, one of those little villages up in Galilee, that he relocates his headquarters, basically throughout his Galilean ministry, to the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a little uh, fishing village up on the north, sort of northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it is apparently there that he will lodge for the next three years or so. Now, keep in mind that most of Jesus' ministry didn't take place down in Jerusalem, down south. Most of it took place up in Galilee. We find there are things that took place down in Jerusalem. Usually, when Jesus and his disciples would go to Jerusalem, down in the southern part of the country, to partake of the feast days. 
But most of the time, they're spending their days in this northern area called Galilee. Now, someone who had a fresh or first encounter with Jesus Christ, as it is related to us here in verse 32, came away absolutely, as we would say, blown away, astonished, amazed, amazed at what he taught. They keep saying, where did he get this knowledge? Where did he get this wisdom? I mean, this is a carpenter's son. He's not an educated man. He never went down to the synagogue or the schools in Jerusalem, never sat at the feet of the great men. Where did this man get this wisdom? But it wasn't just what he taught, it was the way he taught. He taught them, the text says here, with power. His word was with power. Now, in the Scripture, there are two kinds of power. Let's, first of all, sort of define our terms here. The Scriptures sometimes speak of what we would call sheer might, power in that sense. The Greek word usually translated power in that context is the word dunamis, and we get our word dynamic, dynamo, dynamite, all from that root of that Greek word, dunamis. It means sheer Arnold Schwarzenegger strength, okay? That kind of strength, that kind of might, that kind of power. But oftentimes, it speaks of another kind of power, and it is another Greek word, ekasia. And that word, perhaps more properly, should be translated authority. And I'll give you an example. The policeman, when he's trying to stop the bad guys sometimes just says, Hawk, in the name of the law. And the bad guy stops. And you say, well, he stopped him with his power. Well, he did. But it wasn't his might. It was the fact of his authority. I mean, we see that out here on the streets. The policeman walks out into the traffic, blows his whistle, holds up his hand, and all the cars come to a stop. He doesn't have to grab a hold of the bumpers, you know, and like Arnold would do, and drag them to a stop, or Mighty Mouse, or, you know, whoever your hero happens to be, and, you know, pull them to a stop. That would be dunamis, might, strength. But he stops them because they recognize the authority inherent in that uniform. When we were driving down to Mexico to the school a couple of years ago, uh, we had been stopped and hassled by all sorts of authorities for ever since we got into Mexico. Uh, it was a rather adventuresome time, to say the least. But we were driving along this little highway out in the middle of nowhere, and there is a policeman on the side of the road waving me over. Well, I mean, in the United States, you see a policeman on the side of the road waving you over. What do you do? You stop. So I'm pulling over on the side of the road. I've, I've gone up a little past the guy, and I'm pulling over. And Linda's saying, what are you doing? I said, well, that policeman's back there. He's waving me over. And, and she said, he's hitchhiking. And sure enough, I look in my rearview mirror, and here he is running up to the van. And he's got his sack lunch in one hand, you know. And man, I hit the gas and left the guy in the dust. I was, And I'm sure he's still shaking his fist back there at me and saying some things I can't understand. Anyway, but... Um, I wasn't feeling very good Samaritanly that day. I uh, Picking up hitchhikers down in Mexico was not the wise thing to do under those circumstances. But the point is, is that he had authority, but he had no dunamis to back it up. He was on foot, 
he was not about to catch me. We, uh, <laughs> you see, we recognize that it is not enough to simply have authority, to have the uniform, to have the badge. The policeman's authority is recognized because people also recognize he's got that 38. Or if you're Clint Eastwood, the 44 Magnum on his hip. In other words, the authority is backed up by his dunamis, by his might. If you do not reckon or recognize the authority invested in the man, then you're going to have to deal with the dunamis, the might that he can summon. may not be his might, but it will be the might of the government or the power that he represents that is summoned. And you will recognize the authority whether you want to or not. In other words, you see what I'm saying. Those two concepts of power work together, go hand in hand. And both are being here recognized in the Word of Christ. First of all, Jesus is, shall we say, taking, at the very least, you would recognize this, he's taking an authoritative stance. He teaches them as someone would who has authority. In the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear him say, You have heard, it hath been said of old. And sure enough, what he says that was said of old might have been said by Moses, might have been said by the law. And then he turns around and says, But I say unto you, this. Now that's taking an authoritative sense. I don't care who said what, I'm telling you the way it is. Now, it's easy for anybody to get up there and say, Now I'm the authority. I, you know, I can tell you what to do. The question is, can he back it up? Is this just empty claim to an authority, or does his power back up the the authoritative stance that he's taking? That's the question. And here, as Luke's gospel unfolds, we see Christ's power, both in the sense of his authority and in the sense of his might, his ability, being laid open before our eyes by Luke. We see it first in this encounter with a man who has a demon. We sometimes speak of people being demon-possessed. Well, that's reading into the text perhaps what's not there. Uh, the Greek words for would probably be best translated, a man who was demonized. That is, he has a demon. The scripture is very careful to make a distinction between those who had demons and those who had physical diseases. We're going to see that in Peter's mother-in-law here in a minute. It wasn't a demon. In her case, it was a fever. It was an actual physical sickness. We even find a distinction being made between those who have demons and those who have mental illness. In other words, this is not to say that simply they thought crazy folks in that day, people that were a little out of their head and so forth, as we certainly know there are those kinds of folks around today, that they just thought those people were possessed with demons or evil spirits. Uh, No, the scripture makes a distinction between those who would be suffering from what we would call mental illness and those who are truly possessed or have a demon, to use the scriptural term. Notice, in this case, here is a man speaking out, speaking things that he could not and would not have known. He knows who Jesus is. He knows he is the Son of God. How did he know that? 
This is not just a crazy person speaking. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Not someone who's just mentally sick. This is someone who bears evidence of having some supernatural insight and another personality speaking through him. So there's a clear distinction made in the in the scriptures between physical illness, mental illness, and being demonized, on the other hand. I want you to notice where Jesus met this man. Now, it is true that sometimes we meet those who are demonized running naked in the graveyards. That's where Jesus met the Gadarene maniac running around out there uh, cutting himself and more or less trying to take his own life, those types of things. But most often in the earthly ministry of Christ, you know where he met the demonized? In church, (laughs) in the synagogue. Now, I know that's not the church, but it is the assembly of God's people. It's where God's activities is going on. And I think that's rather remarkable in itself that we consider that. That everybody on the face of the earth is religious, including the devil. And after all, you, we think of the devil as, you know, he's out there. It's the guy that's fallen down drunk in the gutter. It's the prostitute on the corner, the drug addict. They're, you know, they're the ones who are possessed of the devil. But keep in mind that that's conquered territory. If you're having a big war, a big battle, where do you find the enemy? You don't find him way back yonder. You find him on the front line. That's where the fighting takes place, and that's where the enemy's going to be. And it is in the synagogue in Jesus' day that the battle is being waged. And it is no great surprise to me that that's where you will find Satan working. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks the very fact that sometimes you find the devil in the pulpit. He speaks of Satan's ministers masquerading as apostles, false apostles he calls them, but as ministers of light. He says, no great surprise, Satan comes as a being, an angel of light, and it's no great surprise that his ministers. And Paul here clearly has in mind those false teachers that have come to court trying to seduce them away from the gospel of Christ, and he accuses them of preaching another gospel, giving them another spirit and preaching another Christ. Now, where they get those ideas? Where'd that come from? We talked this morning in Sunday school class about what John calls the spirit of Antichrist in 1 John chapter 4. But the spirit of Antichrist is not recognized because he has 666 on his forehead or something like that. The spirit of Antichrist, according to John, is recognized by the doctrine that it espouses. It teaches that Jesus is not come in the flesh, which was precisely what the Gnostic heresy was all about in John's day of saying that Jesus really wasn't human, really wasn't physical, really didn't have a human body. And Paul says that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's not the Jesus we knew, not the one we accompanied for three years. That's another Jesus. may go by the same name, you understand. And the man who stands in the pulpit preaching that Jesus may call himself a minister, a gospel minister and so forth. But it's really Satan's agent. So, most often, I mean, you run into the devil in church. That's where the battle is being waged. No great surprise. In fact, Brother Holmes Moore was here with us and spoke last Thursday night. And then Friday, I received in the mail their bulletin from up in St. Louis. And I thought this was quite timely. It says, remember the agents. He's talking about Satan here. Remember the agents he employs. Samson fell by the woman he loved. David was betrayed by his trusted friend. The old prophet of Judah 
was deceived by another prophet. Beware lest he use you or me to hurt those that we love the best. Interesting. The timing of his attacks are a great part of his skill. He waits for the times of physical sickness, as with King Hezekiah. He attacks when we are depressed, like Elijah. Sometimes he, expect, he attacks when we're experiencing hard trials, as with David and Shimei. He tempts with pride in victory, as with King Josiah. Truly, we ought not to be ignorant of his devices, but to put on the whole armor of God. Very timely. That's what we're talking about. Note that Jesus, even though this man is crying out that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, note that Jesus rebukes him and silences him, saying, Hold thy peace. Do you realize how often he does that in Scripture whenever he encounters these demonized people who are clearly now under the possession or control of some sort of supernatural personality of some sort, some being who knows what they would not normally know. They know who Jesus is. They recognize him instantly. And yet Jesus always silences them. He will not allow them to speak. Now, why? If it had been me or you, we'd have probably said, Y'all hear him? Y'all listening? You know? Pay attention now. Don't you hear what this man is saying? Why do you suppose Jesus constantly silences what is, in this case, a true witness? Well, it's because that Jesus will have no other witness of his ministry other than that of his Father's witness of his ministry. The only one that matters to him is what does God, his Father, say about him. Now, that witness may come through John, the Baptist. Remember how John the Apostle describes John? John, a man sent from God. This is God's witness coming through John. It may come through the Scriptures. may come through the Old Testament prophets. But it's nevertheless the wisdom of God, or the witness of God himself. It may be the works, Jesus says, that the Father gives me to do. They bear witness of me, but it's always the Father's witness. He will not have you believe on him because of the devil's witness. And as I said this morning in Sunday school, the devil would love nothing better than to put Jesus on the throne. I mean, that's what he offered him in the temptation. See all the glory of the world, all the power, all the kingdoms. It can all be yours. I've got this power delivered unto me and I can give it to whom I will. Just bow down and worship me. The devil would love nothing better than to be the kingmaker. That's his business. That's what he's been doing for thousands of years, putting his man on the throne. He'd love nothing better than to throw his endorsement behind Jesus and have him established on the throne of this world to be the kingmaker. And yet Jesus will not allow it. It is interesting here that we see the first indication of the power behind his words. You'll notice that Jesus does not get out his little exorcism kit. Did I see in TV Guide the exorcist was on late last night? Luke, how do you know? I'm not going to ask you. <clears throat> you were just reading TV Guide, right? That's what I thought. Yeah, well, I've never seen the exorcist, at least not all the way through. Somehow... 
projectile vomiting just doesn't appeal to me. But uh, to say the least, Jesus, when he's dealing with this unclean spirit, doesn't, you know, bring the crucifix in or he doesn't get some holy water and sprinkle or, you know, some sort of incantation, some sort of hocus pocus, some sort of spell. You know how he treats this demon? He treats this demon like I've seen my dad treat a dog, a stray dog that came into our yard. My dad go out on the front porch and say, Get out of here! I don't know if that dog understood English or not, but he took off running. <laughs> he treated it like you'd treat a dog. Notice, he just says, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And he does. Get out of him. Now this is going to be significant, I think, to the overall thrust of this passage. It's not just that he has the power to exercise unclean spirits. Yes, that's important. That's part of this. But it's the way that he does it. Notice that what their reaction is. They get it. They were all amazed, spoke among themselves. What a word is this? He just says the word. He doesn't get out the magic box. He doesn't recite these long formulas. He doesn't get, you know, bats, tails, and ground up things, some witch's brew. He speaks. And they go. That was what struck them about the authority of Jesus. And oh, by the way, before we leave this, just remember that the devils believe the facts of the gospel. They knew Jesus. They knew who he was. The devils believe and tremble, says James. And yet the devils are not saved. And those with but that faith, the faith of devils, will not be saved as well. But we'll leave that behind. Let's go on into verse 38 and notice that he goes into Peter's house, the synagogue first, and then leaves there, goes to Simon Peter's house. Again, it appears that Simon Peter's home is his headquarters. We have uh, men running for office today who uh, have a headquarters. Recently, Al Gore came back to Nashville to make that his headquarters during his campaign. Well, this is not a political campaign by any stretch of the imagination, but he does have a home base, and it appears that Peter's home is indeed that home base. And he goes into the house, and we find that Peter's mother-in-law... Now, there is some indication in Scripture that Peter was perhaps the oldest of the disciples. Several things that happened that sort of, you know, sort of at least imply that. Here is one of those things that it appears that Peter at least was pretty well established in the city of Capernaum. Has his own house, has a wife, has a mother-in-law. Now, I could, of course, elaborate on mother-in-laws, but uh, I probably will be stoned. Actually, I, I heard a story about a man and his wife arguing over their relatives. You know, one of the things we find about his husband and wife is their our relatives and uh this woman was accusing her husband of loving his side of the family more than her side of the family. And he said, well, that's nonsense. He says, I, I love my mo- uh, your mother-in-law a whole lot more than I love mine. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> here we... But here we see, as Jesus enters into Peter's home, this, I want to call this a byproduct, a fringe benefit of having Jesus on the premises. Because to some degree, that's what it is. Jesus goes into Peter's home, and lo and behold, here's Peter's mother-in-law, sick of a great fever. This is not just a headache, folks. This is something very serious, apparently. 
And you'll notice that there are fringe benefits. I, I, I don't want to digress here, but just let me say that there are graces that accompany saving grace. There, there are fringe benefits that befall others around you because you are a Christian. If you grew up in a Christian home, to Christian parents, whether you are a Christian or not, there were tremendous blessings and privileges that came to you just because of the influence of a godly father and mother. We read over in 1 Corinthians how Paul speaks of the unbelieving spouse, the husband or the wife, being sanctified by the believing, the believer. Now, that doesn't mean they're saved, because he goes on to talk to the wife and say, you don't know that maybe by your behavior, uh, your husband will be one. It doesn't mean they're saved, but it does mean that there is a benefit, a sanctifying influence that comes to the unbelieving spouse through the very presence of a believer. You'll see that in the ministry of Christ, that here he comes into Peter's home. And just because he's there in Peter's home, there's a compassion, a kindness that's being extended to that household. In many ways, that's similar to Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament day that stayed with the two widow ladies, you remember, raising those of their family from the dead in each of those cases because of the very presence of the prophet in their midst. So there is a benefit that comes to a nation because of the Christians within it, to a family because of the Christians within it, and so forth. But you'll notice that suddenly others hearing of Jesus' presence here and no doubt of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law suddenly bring their sick ones to him for him to heal. And oh, we see here as we do so often, he lays his hands on them, on every one of them, and heals them. It says down in verse 40. I'm sure our charismatic friends love to quote this verse and say, well, see, that's what Jesus came to do. Well, the whole thrust of the text here is, no, that is not what Jesus came to do. But that is quickly how men perceive what he came to do. And if Jesus was here today healing folks, is there any one of us, I got to thinking in my mind in thinking about this, is there any one of us here today that doesn't have somebody in your family that you'd run home and get them and bring them up there? I mean, we've all got sick folks. We've all got those in trouble, some sort of affliction of some sort. You ought to hear our prayer request on Wednesday night. I mean, sometimes we give prayer requests for 30 minutes. Because every one of us have people that are near and dear to us that are in great trouble, not just hurting a little bit, but in many cases very sick and desperate situations. We've all got people like that, and we could keep Jesus busy today 24 hours a day. And that's exactly what they were doing here. The sun is setting, the time for the day to be ending in that culture. When the sun went down, things came to a halt, you understand. Then hit the light switch and go on. When the sun goes down, everything's supposed to come to a screeching halt. And instead, the sun is setting and people are besieging Jesus with their sick ones, with their loved ones. And we understand that. And Jesus does too. He heals them all. But you'll notice that in the morning, he goes out in verse 42 to a desert place and the people came to him, found him. In other words, there's no escape. 
the people would have stayed him, would have restrained him by force to stay there. They wouldn't let him go anywhere else. In other words, you're here. We want to keep you here. We sort of like the benefits that we're getting. You take care of all our sick people. You empty our hospitals. And yet Jesus says to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities. For thereunto, for therefore, am I sent. If you had your choice today between having Jesus come and preach to you or Jesus come and heal your sick loved ones, which would you choose? You see, there's a tendency in the human heart to uh, say, well, I know that other stuff's important. You know, I know studying the Word proclaiming the gospel. I know that's important. It's got its place. But man, if I could find somebody that could heal my sore shoulder, shoulder here. You know, if I could get somebody to lay hands on Aunt Sally and get her out of intensive care. Man, I'd give anything for that. Oh, I know this other is important. Do you understand how quickly our priorities get skewed in all of this? Do you understand that these six folks got sick again? This wasn't eternal healing. It's temporary. You do understand that Lazarus, that he raised from the dead, died again. He didn't stay undead. But all of these things were temporal. Temporary. Wondrous blessings. We don't depreciate them. But my friend, these things aren't going to do these folks any good in eternity. This is not the answer. This isn't the reason that Jesus came into this world to heal the sick folks, to empty the hospitals. He came to proclaim the gospel of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, to proclaim the principles on which that kingdom is founded. And he who is the king himself comes to display in these healings his great empty boastful claim. He's not like Muhammad Ali stand up there and saying, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. When he makes a claim, he backs it up. And he will give you a vivid validation that these are not just empty boasts, empty claims. And if you want to see it, then look at what he does. He rebukes. The word rebuke is very strong through here. Three times he rebukes that devil in the first case. He rebukes the fever. Isn't that strange? Just like he said to that demon, go away, and it went. And now he says to the fever, go away, and it goes. And then again, we see these others who have evil spirits down here in uh, verse 41. He rebuking them, did not allow them to speak. That word rebuke keeps popping up through the ministry of Christ. He rebukes the devils. He rebukes sickness. And a little while later in Luke's Gospel, by the way, he will be in the bow of the boat rebuking the winds and the waves on the Sea of Galilee. Now, you and I can stand outside in the rain. You do remember what rain is. After this little reminder, I'd about forgotten myself. I forgot all about lightning, you know. I'm having to say, hey, I've got to turn off my computer and all. It's actually lightning. I hadn't had to do that in months. But can you imagine going out in the rain the other night, looking up in the heavens and say, stop it! Well, you can go out there and yell at the rain all you want. It's not going to stop. Quit it to the lightning. And Jesus stands up in the bow of the boat and says to wind and waves, Hush, peace. 
and they cease. They're stilled. What manner of man is this? Said the apostles. Do, do you understand that all of this, and, and it's a sort of an escalating pattern, especially through Luke's gospel, we see it, laying out how far the extent of Christ's authority. He has authority over evil spirits. He has authority over physical disease. And we're going to see the most important thing is, is that he has authority over man's spiritual condition. Now, there is a subtle, and it is so subtle that I'm afraid I may lose some of you in the mechanics, in the details of it. But it's a very important distinction to be made in the faith, in how we believe on Jesus. And let me see if I can do it. I, I'm not sure I have a clear enough distinction in my own mind, but I'm convinced this is something I've got to get a hold of because I've got to be able to explain this. That there were those who put their faith in Jesus when they saw what he did. You see that over and over again. John tells us that Jesus did not commit himself to them. Something was wrong. Something deficient in their faith. But they believed in that sense. They believed he could. But there is a difference between putting your faith in Jesus on that basis and putting your faith in Jesus because you recognize the authority that is in him. Two different kinds of faith. One which is honored, one which is dishonored in the word. Let me give an example. You remember the nobleman? We just had that a few weeks ago. The nobleman who had his son sick back in Cana and came to Jesus, wanted him to heal him. And Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you shall not believe. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about here is a man who comes to him, who's heard of what Jesus has done, and he wants him to heal his son and so forth. Well, that's one kind of faith. Then there's another situation almost identical to it, a centurion whose servant was sick and comes to Jesus and says, since messengers, actually the Jews in his place, come, would you come and heal my servant? And Jesus takes off, heading in that direction, and he meets him with other servants saying, a word from the centurion said, I'm not worthy that you set foot under my house, under my roof, but I'm a man under authority. I'm in the military. I know what it is to have authority. I say to one man, go. You know, when I want something done, I don't get up and do it. I'm captain over a hundred men. I say, you get up and go and do it. Rayford, that's the way it worked in the military? That, I never was there, but everybody ever been there says that's exactly how it works. The general wants something done, he doesn't get up and do it. He commands somebody else, who commands somebody else, and the poor guy down on the bottom end of the rung of the ladder, he's the guy that has to go do it. Is that the way it works? You say to a man, go, and he goes, and I say to another man, come, and he comes. Now, what's the centurion's point? Why is he, is he afraid Jesus doesn't know how things work in the military? What is the man saying? He's saying, I recognize that in you there is authority. I have authority in me as a Roman officer over the soldiers that I can command, that I can say one go and he goes and another come and he comes, and I see the same thing in you. You don't have to come to my house. All you have to do is say the word and it will be done. And in that case, Jesus says, I haven't found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Never have I run into someone with this great of faith. As I've mentioned to you, lots of times that he condemns men for their lack of faith, or, oh, ye of little faith, 
Only twice does he commend anybody for having big faith. And this is one of them. And what is the basis of this faith? That he recognizes in the person of Christ an authority. He only has to say the word. Go back to our text. Isn't that what we're seeing here? All he has to say to a devil is get. He rebukes a fever. In a word, it's gone. He doesn't have to get out. You know, we go to a doctor, and you may have faith in your doctor when you get seriously ill. But my friend, that's a different faith. And there were some who were coming to Jesus on that basis, like you would go to the medicine man. Same deal, same faith. You go down to the medicine man, and he gets out his potions. We call them pharmaceuticals in our day. Same stuff. He gets out his potions, and he gives us a dose. In other words, we believe the medicine man can heal us because, you see, he knows. He knows how to manipulate things. He knows the right combination. He has this knowledge that we don't have. My friend, your faith in Jesus doesn't operate like that. He's not just a medicine man that knows the right incantation or spell or mixture. We come to Jesus believing that there is in Him the authority over these things. And all He has to do is say, be gone. And it's gone. You see the difference? I say it's a subtle difference. I realize it's not Chris, you know, really defined. It's hard for me to describe it. But I believe this is the critical thing, a critical thing. This is the difference between a faith that Jesus pulled back from and a faith that he committed himself to. And when you go into the pages, for instance, of the book of Acts, and you look at how apostles preached the gospel, how they presented Jesus to people, you're going to find that this is how they did it. It wasn't a question of whether Jesus is some sort of miracle worker or whether he did this or that. The question and what the apostles were presenting to men was one who had authority in his name. They keep talking about in the name of Jesus. The policeman says, stop, halt, in the name of the law. What does it mean? By the authority in the laws of the United States of America, I command you to stop. And the apostles set forth Faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Can I, just in closing, I promise I won't keep you too long. Just a moment. No, just a moment. Acts 2 at Pentecost. Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We get so caught up in the other, we miss that little phrase. It's in the authority of Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, remember they had healed the, the guy that was lame there at the temple gate, John and Peter walking by, silver and gold have I none such as I have given to thee. That's the context here. He says, I want you all to know it wasn't us. I mean, you ought to be able to look at us and see that we didn't do it. It wasn't our power. It wasn't our authority. What then made this slain man walk? Be it known unto you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, and God hath raised from the dead, even by him, 
doth this man stand before Yahweh? It's his power. It's his authority. A little later in Acts 10, at the household of Cornelius the centurion, here's Peter preaching again. Acts 10, in verse 43, here's the final culmination of his sermon. To him, that is Jesus, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. What he's saying is the gospel is that He has the power, the authority, to forgive you. And all the prophets bear witness of that fact. Chapter 13, verse 38. Here's Paul, punchline, if it were, of his sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. Acts 13, 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him... All that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Do you get the sense? It's through Him. It's through His name. Through the power of His authority. And my friend, a Christian may never witness a physical miracle. He may never witness a healing or an exorcism. That's not to say God doesn't do those things today. He does. But you or I may never witness with our eyes those things. But a Christian is one who believes in the power, in the authority, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he is. A Christian, in other words, first of all, recognizes Christ's authority. He sees that in Christ there is this ability this ability to free me, me from what I truly need. And that's not help from my sore, sore shoulder here. It is from my sins that I need to be delivered. And in the name of that one on that throne, there's power to deliver me. But he not only recognizes Christ's authority, he appeals to Christ's authority. He comes. He doesn't just stand far off and admire it, but he draws nigh and he beseeches Christ, do this, do this for me. And thirdly, not only does he recognize that authority and appeal to that authority, he bows to that authority. He bows the knee. He embraces Christ as the King he is. Now, the lost, on the other hand, and Jesus gave us a good illustration of what they're like, he talked about a man went away into far country to receive a kingdom, and while he was gone, his citizens said, What? We will not have this man to reign over us. You want to know what a lost man's heart looks like? That's what it looks like. We won't have him reign over us. Oh, yes, you will. Oh, yeah. He will. But the difference between the saved and the lost is the saved love that rule, love that reign. They see it, they beseech it, and they bow to it. We believe in His authority because we believe in His person and in His work for sinners. We believe that He can save me, or save you from your sin. Because we believe that He went to a cross and He did what was necessary.
to satisfy the justice of God that we might be saved. And therefore there is in the hands of that man seated on that throne in glory the power to save you, to deliver you. That's the message of the apostles, by the way. There are those, we in sovereign grace circles, we sometimes prod our Arminian friends by saying, well, the apostles never told everybody that Jesus died for everybody in the book of Acts. And then they very subtly remind us, well, Jesus also didn't say that he just died for the elect in the book of Acts. In fact, the subject hardly ever comes up in the book of Acts, to be quite honest. But you know what subject does come up over and over in the book of Acts? They take lost men, they point them to Jesus on the throne, and they said, that man is able to save you. Whoever you are, he's able. He has authority. He can say the word, and you'll be delivered. Oh, I look around this room, face after face, of those who have indeed been delivered from the power of sin, from the power of Satan, through the authority, the name of Jesus Christ. My friend, it's real. That's why we're here. We're just not here trying to prop him up, you know, trying to hold his kingdom together and promote his interests. We're here because we're just like these folks who first heard him. Astonished. Because his word is with power. It changes lives. May it get a hold of you today. Let's pray. In Christ's name, Father, we come to you. That mighty name. The authority. The name that is above every other name. And we bow the knee of our heart before you today. And we confess that he's Lord of lords and King of kings. We confess that he has the keys of hell and death. Lord, that it's all in his hands. That all power in heaven and earth has been given unto him. And he alone is worthy to sit in that exalted seat. Because he alone, Father, humbled himself and became a servant to us all. We come in that mighty name. We ask that you, even in our day, display the might and the power of his word. Father, that is my heart's desire. To lay before your people, not what I think, not my words but to lay Your Word and open it before their eyes, to impress them with what You have said, Your testimony of Christ. May we hear His words today, and may they come to us in might and in power. May they rip us away from the grip that the world has upon us and we upon it. May these words, Father, deliver us from the power of Satan, that unseen spirit in whose kingdom we spend our days doing His favor and His bidding. Father, may they tear away from our hearts the love of this present world, the love of sin. Father, may You come through the power of the Spirit. May Christ come to us and speak once again. Thank You for the deliverances of sin that we have witnessed with our eyes. Lord, we must confess we don't see many of those physical things go on. Oh, we, we don't doubt Your power to do it, nor Your ability or Your willingness. But Lord, we are looking for the greater miracle. The one that will last for eternity. And though this body is destroyed and worms eat it,
we look for an everlasting habitation, a home in the heavens. Father, may we set our affections on things above. Speak, move in our midst today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.